So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in front of you in the pew. We are uh, continuing to work our way through the book of Genesis, slowly but surely. If you have any questions about the sermon this morning, uh, you can text the anonymous text number and we will uh, look over those at the end. So overall, this morning, if, if you, if you want to write down, like, what are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about being self-centered. We're talking about selfishness. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But, but before that, I want to talk about disappointment. Um, in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, The man was intimate with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have have a male child with the, help, with the Lord's help. And she also gave birth to his brother Abel. This set of verses comes directly after what we talked about last week. When Dustin was with us, he, he told us about the curse. But then in the middle of this curse, there's a promise, right? In, in chapter 3, verse 15, it says, I will put hostility between you and the woman. He's speaking to the snake. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. There's this, there's one who is coming, a descendant of Eve that is going to make right all the things that the sin of Adam and Eve made wrong. And the very next thing we see is Eve has a son. What is your conception of how the promises of God work through time? What assumptions do you carry with you about the things that God has said that he will do? Uh, we, we know from scripture that, that Christ will return, right? Jesus is coming back, amen? Amen. amen. And it's obviously going to be this year. Why? Because, well, because see, Israel became a nation in 1984, and a generation in the Bible is 80 years, and that makes 2028, and you subtract seven for the Great Tribulation, and that's 2021. It all, the math checks out. <laughs> this is spinning around online right now, depending on the, the YouTube world that you live in, that, that this is the year because of a certain interpretation of the Gospel of Matthew, because of a certain set of parameters and mathematics that obviously it has to happen now. But what if it doesn't? What if 2021 comes and goes? How, what does that do for us? How do we handle disappointment? Many of us, I know some of us are, are a little um, afraid of the idea that God speaks to us personally. I would encourage you to uh, grow in that area. But many of us believe that God has spoken to us personally in, in a variety of ways over the course of our lives. About a job that we should take, or a, a person we should marry, or children we will have, or, or a health outcome. And I believe that that's, that's a real thing that God does. But do we, do we assign a timeline to those things? that God doesn't approve of. God told Eve something really specific. One of your offspring is going to turn this whole thing around. 
And it's really easy to imagine her in this situation believing that she is seeing it come true. But the reality is it's going to be thousands of years before that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. And for those of us that are wrestling with God's promises, I don't want to push us away from having hope. We're called to be hopeful people. But God's promises don't always happen on our timetable. We're called to trust in the Lord's promises, especially the ones that are explicit in Scripture. But we need to hold loosely our personal interpretation of how they're going to play out. We're not going to spend all of our time here, but just imagine, try to, especially moms, imagine the pain that Eve feels on the other side of this story. She has these these two boys that that in many ways are miraculous because nobody's ever had children before. This is all brand new for humanity. She even says, God helped me with this because I don't know how this works. And at the end of the story, one's going to be dead and the other one's going to be banished. Man, I thought for sure God's promise was going to come true. But it didn't yet. Paul tells us in Romans 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Whether or not we see the material, relational, or circumstantial promises of God come to pass in a way that we expect them to, Our future hope, Paul says, should be planted in the present reality that God's Spirit is within us. Because the fact that God's Holy Spirit lives inside of you, Christian, and empowers you to live a life that looks like Jesus, that's the thing that sustains us through affliction, gives us endurance, grows our character, and that's the proof that God is actively working in us today. And it's the hope that God will fulfill his promises tomorrow. But like I said, we're not talking about disappointment. We're talking about self-centeredness. Let's take a look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. So the first thing that we have here is self-centered worship. Self-centered worship. And the story in this section of Genesis is somewhat vague. The Old Testament is often like that. It leaves out details that we would like to have. Why did God accept Cain and not Abel? doesn't explicitly say. We're kind of left to figure it out on our own. 
as we read forward in the Old Testament, we learn about the sacrificial system and we learn that animal sacrifices and grain sacrifices were both acceptable to God. In fact, the word used for Cain's sacrifice is the same word that Moses uses to instruct the people to take from their produce and give to the Lord. So it doesn't seem like Cain's vegetables are necessarily a problem. But we do get a hint when we read about Abel's sacrifice. Abel sacrificed the firstborn of his flock and the fat portion. So the firstborn, the first time an animal has an offspring, that very first uh, lamb or goat, it doesn't say, lamb, let's say lamb, very first lamb is sacrificed to the Lord. And then it says that the fat portions, the part that is the best part of the animal, I'm going to give that to God. Abel sacrifices immediately and he gives of his best. See, when Abel was blessed with increase, he didn't want to wait to see how the rest of the year would pan out, and he didn't give God the leftovers. But Cain, Cain just gave some of his produce. And I think this is the difference between their worship. Sacrifice is evidently part of the rhythm of the community at this point. We don't know why Cain and Abel or how, if God instructed them on, on animal sacrifice and, and uh, grain sacrifice, or, or just, again, the Bible doesn't say. But Cain and Abel both participate in it. And in that participation, Abel cares about God, while Cain just cares about himself. Abel is quick to give, and he gives extravagantly. And it seems like Cain is just giving out of obligation or routine. It's because he's supposed to. So I want to take a look at a few different ways that we can be self-centered in our worship. And, and there is a sense in which we always worship all the time. We've talked about being image bearers. We, we worship God with our lives. But specifically, when we gather, when we worship as a community, we can be self-centered in our presence. Why do, why do we show up? Why, do we, why, do we, why are we here? Because if, if I don't, Zach is going to text me and ask me where I've been, and, and that's really annoying. It's true. Or, or do you really look forward to being in God's presence with God's people when we gather? Do you wake up on Sunday going, I get to be at church this morning. I get to be a part of something that's bigger than myself. Or are you looking for ways to just kind of squeak by? Maybe if I sit in the back, nobody will see me. Come late, leave early, don't talk to anybody. Or are you looking for ways for the, the glory of God to be made uncomfortable? Think about Abel, giving the first and the best. That's uncomfortable. That's not easy to do. It's much easier to just kind of find something off the side and and give it to God. Do we sit passively? Do we not interact with the community? It's because, see, you've all been given supernatural gifts by the Holy Spirit, specifically to benefit this community. That's that's why I believe you're here. But if you're not going to use them, well, I mean... 
It'd be work. I mean, I'd have to talk to people. I'd have to get to know people. I'd have to like empathize with people, and that's hard. Or do you come expecting the Spirit of God to prompt your conversations, give you spiritual insight, and bless others in this place? Is Sunday a time where you give your best to God and others, or a time where you expect others to just serve your preferences and not bother you? So we can be self-centered in our presence. We can also be self-centered in our resources. Cain and Abel, they worked hard for their harvest. Cain gave what he thought he could spare. Abel gave his first and his best. Tithing isn't, isn't a thing that, that I believe that we're um, under in the new covenant. Tithing, the 10th the is an Old Testament um, kind of framework. Jesus and the apostle Paul changed things in the New Testament. They say, no, no, don't, you don't need to give a certain percentage. You just need to be generous. Be, be a generous giver. And, and I think that's really a higher standard, isn't it, than like checking off a box of a certain percentage of your income. But nonetheless, I, I think consistent percentage giving is a good habit to develop. If, if you're not in the habit of setting aside your resource for the use of the kingdom, I would encourage you to consider it. Our family personally gives 10% off the very top of what we earn before taxes, before retirement, before whatever else. And we've done it for years. We've done it when, when we feel like everything is fine financially. We've done it when we feel like we do not have enough financially. And God always seems to take care of us. Some of you may believe that, you know, when I get over the next financial hurdle in my life, then I'm going to start giving to the Lord. The reality is you're never going to get there. If there's always an excuse as to why you're not giving to the Lord, then you're just not going to start. There's always going to be something in your life begging for the best of your resources. And if you don't decide to give the best to God, you just won't. One of the things we don't do here, and it, there's nothing wrong with it, but we don't pass an offering plate. We have an offering box in the back. Everybody gives online anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but what passing the plate does is it promotes pulling out a 20 and dropping it in. Oh, everybody's looking at me. I want to I look like I'm giving something or, oh, I, I, I haven't considered giving and I, I want to I do that. But, but see, for Abel to give the first and the best, it required pre-planning. He wasn't going to just stumble into church one day and have that ready. So I think what we're called to be as generous givers is people who put thought into the resources God has blessed us with and have a plan for how we're going to give the first and the best back to God. I want to read you an example of this in 2 Corinthians. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth. He says, now considering the ministry to the saints, it is unnecessary for me to write to you. For I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians. Acacia has been ready since last year. They're giving a big offering to Jerusalem. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty, and so that you would be ready, just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation." 
Therefore, I consider it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised, so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. The point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who shows, sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Paul isn't interested in guilting self-centered people into giving. He's not interested with people with a heart of Cain who just, well, I guess I better give something. He's interested in people who are inspired by love for God and his people to share the best of what God has already given them as an exercise in trust and obedience to God. And when I keep for myself what God is asking me to give away in the name of self-interest, I ultimately harm myself. Cain's sacrifice is not accepted. He doesn't receive blessing from God for his half-hearted gift. He is the one that is harmed by his self-centered heart. And thirdly, we can be self-centered worshipers in our vocation. Our vocation, the trajectory of our life, the path that God has us on, who you are and who you are becoming. Cain and Abel dedicated much of their lives to their work. Raising livestock, cultivating vegetation in any situation, let alone a pre-Bronze Age situation, would have taken nearly all of their physical energy, all of their time, and it probably absorbed the lives of their families as well. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of vocations represented here this morning. There are business owners. There are people in vocational ministry. There are people who are employees at a company. There are stay-at-home parents. These are the things that we give our lives to. Do you think about how you can give the best of those things back to God? Do you just keep your head down at work? Or do you look for ways to share the love of Christ with your coworkers? Do you make the most money you can regardless of your business practices or do you choose people over profit? I don't know how, I'm so tired of people telling me that it's not personal, it's just business. I have this conversation with people and, and it's, the reality is if, if you have to make a decision that is unethical or harmful to someone because it makes you more money and that's how you rationalize stewardship to the Lord, my job is to make as much money as possible for God and I'm going to run over people in the process, then you're not really serving God, you're serving money. Jesus says we can't do both of those things. Stay-at-home parents, are you raising the young, not yet Christians in your home to be good little rule followers that leave you alone when you need peace? Or are you seeking to give your kids a model of God's love and grace? And I know from my home, it's probably a little bit of both. <laughs> but do we think about our vocation and, and how we're responding to God in it? Abel gives most of his life to raising animals. The leading edge of his personal mission, the bottom line of his business plan, is the best things are for the Lord. Cain dedicates his life to farming, and it seems like he pulled together something to give as well. See, ultimately, God isn't interested in the gift. He's interested in the heart of the giver. 
Cain's heart is self-centered and Abel's is God-centered. So we see self-centered worship and now we're going to see self-centered conflict. Look at the second half of verse 5. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So Cain is angry. He's furious. His outward persona is being challenged. God doesn't accept self-centered worship. See, Cain's offering would have fooled everyone except God. God is so gracious here. He's, he's not interested in Cain's sacrifice. He's interested in Cain's heart. And he's urging Cain to have a change of heart and mind to value his relationship with Yahweh. And God describes sin here as an animal waiting to attack. I was, I was looking online for some really good illustrations about this, and they all came from horror movies, and I didn't want to subject you all to that. But think about this. There's a doorway, and man, it, it seems like you should be going through the doorway. It's, it's a nice doorway. You think the thing on the other side is a good thing, and, and God says, no, there is a lion on the other side of that doorway, and it is hungry. And if you go through that door, it will go badly for you. It will destroy you. Stop walking that direction, Cain. Turn around. Listen to this. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, lo loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. Something Jesus was fond of saying, repent, turn around, because the kingdom of heaven is near. Some of you today are exactly where Cain is, and God is calling you out. And here's the thing. He's saying, I love you. I want what's good for you. If you keep going that way, if you keep living that life, if you keep ignoring the dark parts of your soul that are, letting, that are leading and directing you, sin is going to eat you. It will tear you up and destroy you. And here's the crazy thing. Cain is mad about some vegetables, how big a deal is that? I mean, it's just, it's just an offering. But before too long, there's going to be a murder, isn't there? It's just, a, it's just a little bit of pornography. It doesn't affect me. I'm just moving a little bit of money around. The company won't even know that it's gone. You know, it just, it just hurts. And I don't, I, don't, I don't think I need to forgive. I'd rather just forget about it. God says, be careful. Sin is coming for you. 
Either you quit walking through the door or you will be devoured. And it's crazy that the fact that the very first sin recorded after the fall is murder is just kind of laid out there. He took him out into the field and he killed him. Murder is a horrific sin, but, but look at Cain's reasoning. My problem will be fixed by getting rid of the other person. I'm not to blame for my heart. They are. The problem here is this relationship with them. Again, I hear often, this thing happened and they hurt me and I will never forgive them. How many of us see our marriages as being much more peaceful if our spouse wasn't there? I wouldn't get so angry if she wasn't so needy. I wouldn't spend so much money if he wasn't such a jerk. See, in a self-centered conflict, the other person is obviously the problem. I heard a really sound piece of advice once from Pastor Andy Stanley talking about conflict. He says, own more than your fair share. Maybe, maybe you think, you know, 30% is probably my fault. Take 50. Take, take 70. Maybe even take 100. Take more responsibility than you think you deserve. Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. I usually read that verse and think about like neutral situations, like people needing meals, like, oh, this person is hurting and, and we want to help them. I don't want to think about my own needs. I want to think about the needs of others. But how does this apply to conflict? What does it look like to go out of your way to see the other person's perspective and to be an advocate for their interests when they are the source of your negative emotions? Cain doesn't see it that way. And he takes his brother out into the field and murders him. So we saw self-centered worship, self-centered conflict, and now we're going to see a self-centered life. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord responded to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod east of Eden. Cain refuses to be held accountable for his actions. He straight up lies to God and then sarcastically mocks the assertion that he has any responsibility for his brother. Setting the murder aside for a moment, this is a very libertarian view of human relationships. And I don't specifically mean the political party. 
but the idea that I won't bother you and you don't bother me. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. What you do is your business. Listen to Paul again in Romans 12. This is a long passage, but it's, there's a lot in here. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Are you your brother's guardian? Y yeah. Yeah, you are. In a lot of really specific ways, according to Paul. We don't get to bow out of that when things get difficult. This is one of the things that, that our church practices through membership. We have an official membership covenant, and those of us that are members read and agree to that covenant and say, yeah, we are going to be here for one another. And when things come up, when there's sickness, when there's conflict, when there's concern, we lean in to those relationships instead of pulling away. And it's hard sometimes. Cain's unrepentant sin destroys his life. His life is built around cultivating the ground and it will no longer produce for him. The ground is what betrays him. He has given his life to it and it has left him. Why do we do what we do? Why do we choose a job, a spouse, a city, a church? Is it because we prayerfully consider how best to live as Christ's people on this planet? Or is it because it's just what we want? We ask the same question in a different way. What's the deepest part of your identity? Is it your job, your kids, your house, your toys? What happens when you work for self-centered ends and they end up failing you? Cain cared more about his crops, more about himself than he did for God and his crops betrayed him. Famous quote from missionary Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Cain built his entire life on an identity that his sin destroyed, just like God said it would. And Cain is not repentant. After all of this, he doesn't want to change. He just wants to complain about the consequences. That's not fair. It's too hard. They, people will come and kill me. But look at what God does. God shows him grace. Cain deserves to die. 
interesting exercise when you have some free time. Look through the Bible and find all the times that people should be put to death, but God doesn't kill them. God often circumvents his own laws about the death penalty because he is a merciful and gracious God. Cain isn't interested in forgiveness. He's only interested in himself. John Walton comments on this passage, distance from God is not just because we sin, it is because we enjoy sin, cherish sinful ways, and even protect our right to sin and resist any attempt to harness our depravity. So we got two chapters, church, where everything was awesome. And it was a lot of fun. But unfortunately, from now on, it's going to get bleak. Chapter 3 really took a turn. And chapter 4 got worse. Before we close, though, I want to talk about another brother. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory... It was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. For the one who sanctifies and those that are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus... Jesus is our brother. So who are we? See, you and I, we're Cain. Selfishness, disregard for other people marks us as human beings. It's the air we breathe. We don't have what it takes to rightly come into the presence of God. Our sacrifices are not good enough. And the one person whose sacrifice is good enough, we took him out into the countryside and we killed him. Our wickedness, our self-serving union with death put Jesus on the cross. More from Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom, a storm, to the blast of a trumpet, to the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that another word, that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. He's talking about the giving of the law to the Israelites, the covenant God makes with them in the book of Exodus. And he says, instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling, sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried from the ground for vengeance. Jesus' blood doesn't cry out from the ground because Jesus is not in the ground. Jesus has risen from the dead. Listen to what Jesus' blood does cry. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood says, come near. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus' blood says, be at peace. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctifying for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we may serve the living God. Jesus' blood says, be made clean and come alive. The blood of Jesus speaks today a better word than Abel. It's a word of restoration and safety. It's also a word of judgment. Hebrews again, see to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on the earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he is promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The expression yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that, not what is, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So the text before us, offers us a choice. Are we going to relate to God the way Abel related to God? Trusting in him, rejoicing in him, centered on him and cleansed from sin by the blood of Christ? Or are we going to live lives like Cain? Are we going to live lives for ourselves? Are we going to worship for ourselves? Is everything going to be about us and for us? Are we navigating this place for looking out for number one more than anything? Again, things don't go well for Cain. And they're going to get worse for the humans as we continue to work through Genesis. But today, we can rest in the fact that the blood of Jesus speaks a word better than the blood of Abel did. It speaks a word of hope and life and peace for anyone that would trust in Christ. I'm going to take a few questions. Let's see what we got here. Is it possible that Cain and Abel were twins? Yeah, maybe. Anything's possible, right? One thing that's interesting about uh, Cain and Abel is they start a trajectory that we're going to see over and over and over again through the book of Genesis where brothers are fighting. We're gonna, and you'll, you'll recognize it as it comes up. It comes up often. Um, but in a couple of those instances, we know that the brothers are twins. And so it's possible that they're twins. But the text doesn't say. 
Why does God ask Cain where his brother is? He knows he's dead. Is it just an opportunity to give him, is it just to give him an opportunity to be repentant? Yeah, I think so. I think God often does that for us. We are people that are so absorbed with the things that we have going on, we very rarely take time to look at what's going on inside of us. And God does this with Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve, they hide. And God says, Adam, where are you? What happened? And he knows. He's God. He knows everything that happened. Just like some of you who are parents, you know who took the cookies out of the cookie jar, you're going to ask anyway. You're going to give that child an opportunity to lean into that relationship instead of pull away. And I think that's what God is doing. That's what God is always doing over and over and over again for us is he's asking us to lean into the relationship instead of pull away. And he offers it to Cain. Where's your brother? But Cain doesn't take it. Cain lies and responds with sarcasm and he walks backwards from the relationship. God wants nothing more from us than for us to draw near. He's given us what we need to do so. And the shed, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And all it takes is for us to trust him. We're going we're to take communion this morning as we always do. And I'm going to have the band come back up. All of us this morning, we deserve to be banished from the presence of God just like Cain. We deserve to be united with sin and death and to wander in ruin until it consumes us. But the blood of Christ has saved us. We take the bread as his body and the cup as his blood and instead of being betrayed by the fruit of the ground and kicked out into the wilderness, we are given assurance by the fruit of the ground and invited to the king's table. So I'm going to invite you as we sing to come and take the bread and take the cup, take it back to your seat, and remember the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. Remember that in Christ you have been made whole, you have been made clean. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I don't know all of you. I don't know where you're all at. Maybe you're, you're new to this church thing. Maybe you've been a church person for a long time, but you've never really taken Jesus seriously. Then, then this is just a snack. And it's not a particularly good snack. It's a memorial to someone you don't know. It's, it's like driving down the highway and seeing a cross and some flowers on the side of the road. You recognize it as an important thing, but it doesn't really register for you. But if you want life, if you, wanna, if, you're, if you can hear the voice of God saying, you are going towards that door and there is a lion on the other side and it is going to kill you, you can turn around. You can repent from your sins and trust in Jesus this morning. You can trust in his work on the cross taking his, your sin on himself and dying in your place and then conquering death through his resurrection. And I would plead with you, if that's you this morning, to lay down your self-interest, let go of your pride, receive forgiveness for your sins and trust in Christ as your hope.
You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.